Okay, so the topic today is church discipline. Again, welcome guest. So glad you came today. So glad that our members showed up today. I do find it very convenient that there were many vacations. People got sick today. They got lost along the way. I mean, my goodness. Y'all, this is, you hear the word church discipline. And if you're like me in the beginning, whenever I heard church discipline, there's kind of this, oh, okay, all right, what's about to happen? Like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? We're not executing church discipline today in this moment. Um, But I do think it's healthy for us to know, especially in light of what we have seen in the SBC, especially in light of what we see in the life of the church, and especially because pastors don't even know how to think through this fully either. So I'm not even going to say, I've got this figured out. I'm not going to say that a church on the other side of town doesn't have it figured out. I want to give you some scripture that I think will support everything. And then I just want to give you considerations for you to think through. Because this is a pretty divisive topic. I do want you to know, I do think it's biblical whenever done correctly. And I do think it's healthy when done humbly. But... Be nervous of the one who walks in and goes, oh, I love church discipline. I'm all about church discipline. Let's do church discipline. You need to watch out for those. You also need to watch out for the ones who go, oh, I don't want any church discipline. I want any accountability. Like, that's not healthy either. To humbly walk through this is what we all need. So I do think it's biblical. But, but how did we get here? Because we are, we are verse by verse, passage by passage church. We preach through scripture. Well, what you're going to find in 1 Timothy is we're going to have to have several topical sermons where we kind of just stop and really kind of press into that topic a little bit more. In this case, church discipline. There's going to be some passages over women in church and women in ministry. What's going on there? What does that really look like? We're going to press into that a little bit more. What are elders? What are deacons? They're in 1 Timothy, but then how do we make them distinct? We're going to press into these topics a little bit more um, as we move through 1 Timothy because 1 Timothy is the book that, that we can look at. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, where God has communicated through Paul, who is writing to Timothy, that this is what the church should look like. It's not, it's not just descriptive, it's prescriptive. This, these are things that should be happening, but in other times it's describing what was happening and we, we wrestle through those things. So we're hitting pause on verse 20. That's how we got to church discipline. I do hope that by the end of this, you don't leave here and go, well, what's the point of that? How does that apply to me? It all applies to us, and I hope that I can deliver it clearly enough and humbly enough that we understand why this is important. So that's how we got to the topic. Go to 1 Timothy. This is just going to be our launch point for today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. And then we're going to be using a bunch of different scripture today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. It says, Hymenaeus and Alexander... He says they've made a shipwreck among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's, that's where we're getting to our church discipline topic. This, we've got to understand what this means. And so last week, we discussed who these men were, what it meant for them to be, quote, handed over to Satan, which means that they were cast out from fellowship with believers. And, and so I'm not going to revisit all that. I can get you those notes. I'd say go listen to the sermon. It was recorded, but, but we had trouble with that. So it's not even recorded. Um, so I can send you all my notes or I can have coffee with you. Um, 
But it, it gives us this opportunity to really kind of press into church discipline, what it is and what it's not. So first things first, what is the church? Before we can talk about church discipline, we got to talk about what is the church because it adds the gravity to the situation. So what is the church? One commentator does it. Well, it's actually Wayne Grudem. He, he does it so succinctly. He does it perfectly. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. That is, the church is made up of all men and women who have been or or ever will be true believers in Jesus. And so the church is not a social club. It's not um, just like-minded people getting together to hang out. It's not a country club. The church is not a building. It's not a service. We're, we're doing church. We came to church this morning. But the church is collectively made up of all believers of all times, of all territories, wherever we are. One day that will all culminate into the new Jerusalem heaven coming down as the bride to Christ. And so one day we will all be collectively together and that will be awesome. Like we're going to meet Paul and Timothy that we're reading about here. We're going to be able to see Moses face to face. Like all of them from all time are all going to be together and it's going to be wonderful. We just probably won't care about the other ones because we're going to be in the midst of God the whole time. But it's going to be cool to know that somewhere they're there. Okay. So the church is a community of all true believers. It is a gathering of saints. In other words, I'll say the word saints a whole lot, but it is a gathering of the saints so that we can worship our God wherever he sends us to be. All right, so take a look at Matthew chapter 16. I want to try and give you as much scripture as I can today um, before the consideration. So we're going to be all over scripture. Um, Matthew chapter 16. To have a right understanding of church discipline, we have to have a right understanding of the church and sin and then the interplay between those. So the church... Y'all need to know the church was established by Jesus. Like it was established by Jesus. Matthew 16 verses 13 through 19 show us. I'm going to move kind of quickly today because on paper it looks like a long sermon. Even though it was whittled down three pages, it still looks like a lot. So I'm going to move quickly. So make friends with your neighbor. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14 says, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, and there's some wordplay there, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's where we're going to stop. There is more there. We're not preaching on that passage. We're looking for what we need to, to what is the church. Jesus is going to build his church on the solid profession that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. Jesus is building his church on that profession that he is the Lord. Okay, so then that means, this is important, that there are two expressions of the church. There's the universal church. It's invisible. In other words, it spans all time and territory. It's universal um, it exists for all time, all territories. We can't see it. That's the universal expression of the church. This is a local expression of the church, right? So we are the visible expression. If there is the universal invisible, we are the local visible church. And we're just one of them because we're not all of it, right? That's what many churches get wrong. You know, we don't have it all figured out here. We don't have the corner on the market. We are not the only Christ-centered, gospel-proclaiming church in this community. Praise the Lord for that. Because if this were it, 
Oh, my. But we are scattered all throughout the city, all throughout the state, all throughout the nation, all throughout the world. There are local visible expressions. What constitutes a church is simply this, a gathering of believers, not people who say, ah, I love hanging out with you people, but a gathering of believers, the right preaching of the word and the right observance of the sacraments. If those things are happening, you have a church. I don't care if it's five people, 10 people, 500 people, a right preaching of the word, a right observation of the sacraments and a collective gathering of the saints. You have a church right there. What if we're not doing one of those things? We're not a church. Right? You can't have a church without observing baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are things we should be doing in remembrance. You can't have a church if you're not believers. You can't have a church if you're just getting up there and talking and not preaching the Word. There's some litmus tests all throughout Scripture. That's a totally different sermon, I know, and that's a soapbox, but that's really important. So that's what the church is. It was instituted by Jesus on the proclamation that He is the Lord. The church is also a body of believers. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is really important for us because it starts moving into church discipline. Why does church discipline matter? Because we are a body of believers. I'm going to start in verse 12 and I'm going to go through 30. I know you can read, but faith comes from hearing also not simply reading. Listen and read along with what this says. And also, I'm in the ESV version. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God, y'all listen to this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, I'll start listening very closely. The parts of the body that seem to be weak are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more presentable parts to do not, which I'm sorry, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that it lacked. And there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, cross life. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts, healing, helping, administration, Administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then he's going to go on and get it. What's going on here? Like that's a lot of words. There's a whole lot. Because he's going to get into spiritual gifts and stuff like You and I belong to one another as a local church. You are not necessarily gifted as I am, nor am I gifted as you are. Praise the Lord. 
Because if we were all gifted the same way, then where would the body be? That's what he's really getting at. But he also does say, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one is honored, then all rejoice together. We belong to one another. That's what church membership means. Church membership means I'm accountable to you and you're accountable to me. I'm accountable for you. You're accountable for me. We are accountable to and for one another. That's what genuine, healthy church membership looks like. See how this all does start moving us, though? If I just think of you're just a group of people I come see every Sunday and we're not a body together, if we're not a body together, we're no longer accountable to one another. But Scripture says when we come together in the local body, within this midst, there is an eye, there's an ear, there's a foot, there's a toenail, there's a belly button, there's a liver, there's a kidney, there's a mouth. Like the local body coming together is the body. And then that all somehow fits universally into his bigger church as well. You all with me? Okay. So you and I are meant to function together. It's biblical. It's scriptural. You also need to see this one. This is the one that greatly humbles me. The church is the bride of Christ. I think when we remember that one, then church purity means so much more. You and I are part of, we are the bride of Christ. So go to Ephesians chapter 5. It's going to sound like a marriage conference for just a moment um, until you get to the, the significant passage. Um, so Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. I'm sorry, 22 through 32. And then we're going to jump to Revelation. So Ephesians 5 says this. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So you hear some of the the echoes there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And if we stop right there, it's great marriage conference material. But then look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Y'all, our marriages here, as wonderful and glorious and great as they are, they are temporary for this world. There is an eternal marriage that will not end. And whenever I lose sight of that, then my marriage becomes even greater to me. I love you so very much. Okay, But this marriage in this world is not about us. Like, it's not about Chas and me. It's not about us making our way in our possessions. All of our marriage comes down to a parable of the gospel. Our marriage should function in such a way that people look into it and they say, oh, that's what it means for Christ to love the church and the church to love Christ. All of it in verse 32 says, This mystery is profound, that there is this unity and love and submission and respect and honor between the two in their respective roles. The mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You and I are the bride of Christ. That changes how I think of life. It changes how I think of the church. 
I don't want to piddle around and play games. We're the bride of Christ. And just as a bride wants to be pure for the groom, so the church should want to be pure for the groomsman or for the groom as he comes, which will be Jesus Christ. Look at Revelation 19. I'm going to keep moving. I know this is all like the first point, by the way. And I only have 22. It's going to be okay. All right. But Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Then John in the Spirit says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the, the, I'm sorry, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. If you were to flip a couple of chapters more, you'll land in Revelation 21, verses 9 through 11, in which we see the holy city Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God. And it has the I mean, here's what it says. The holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clearest crystal. Y'all, this is Jesus's bride and Jesus is waiting for. Her, and there's about to be this huge marriage. And that is where we will be seated for all of eternity. That's us in the final days, in the final moments. We are going to be in the new Jerusalem coming down, married to Christ. It's further in Revelation 21 where we get our passages where it says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will be our God and we will never be apart from him. There will be no son for he he will be with us. All of those passages that we love follow this point. It's speaking of the new heaven and everything coming together. We are part now of the bride of Christ. We are imperfect. We mess up. We stumble. We sin. But praise God that his blood has made us new for all of eternity and his forgiveness is once and for all. So right now you might be saying, I know me. I don't feel like the bride of Christ. I'm not contributing to the bride of Christ. Praise God. He gives repentance and restoration and brings us back to newness. But y'all, we are. Okay, so the church. What is a church? It is a community of saints from all time, all territories, who believe and profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they're going to live their lives devoted to Him. They come in locally, visibly, so we can see one another. But this is just part of the larger invisible church. Everybody good? Okay. Second thing you need to know, sin matters. If that's the church, for to talk about church discipline, you need to know that sin matters. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. I'm going to give you several verses here. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Y'all, sin matters. It came at such a great cost, not to you and me, but to Jesus Christ our Lord, who willingly took that on. Whenever we say it's a free gift of salvation, somewhat, it's free to us at great cost to God. And whenever we say free, we mean you know, there's no great exchange that, that has to happen between us right there, but it is a lifelong of obedience and devotion to Him. And that does come at cost of sacrifice too. All right, I need you to write down, you have to write this one down, 
Joshua 7, verse 16 through 26. Because this is an important thing for you to be aware of. Actually, all of Joshua 7 will help. But this is the passage, this is the chapter that deals with Achan's sin. Most people don't know what Achan's sin is. Some do. Achan is A-C-H-A-N. So what has happened in Joshua 7 is that Israel, under Joshua's command, has gone out and waged war. There was a decree from the Lord. He said that you will not plunder their goods. You will not take theirs. Well, Achan, being a soldier in this, Achan sees the goods. He sees the spoils. He takes those. He goes and he buries them and hides them in his tent. He does this privately. He does it secretly. No one knows this. But what happens as a result of that is Joshua sends men and they go to wage war against Ai. And as they're waging war, Israel begins to lose. And they should not lose because the Lord is with them. The Lord has said, I will be with you. You will be successful. I go with you wherever you go. Go on this conquest. And so as they are going, now they're beginning to lose. And so Joshua comes back to the Lord and says, what? what's happening? Like we're losing and we're dying. And God said, there's basically says there's sin in your camp. So Joshua, you can read the whole chapter. They basically narrow it down to Achan who says, I saw the goods and I took them. I buried them in my tent. Here they are. The end result, quote, they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, Achan, and, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Anchor. But Achan's sin was a private, secret sin, and yet it greatly affected many. Men died, Israel lost because of Achan's private, secret sin. Y'all, sin matters. Even secret sin matters. It has a weight on it in the mystery of God's providence and how He works things out. Secret sin or things held in darkness can affect to a great magnitude others. Does it always happen? No, by the grace of God. Does it sometimes happen? Oh, most doubtly. Can God do it and be just? Absolutely He can. He is the just and justifier of all things. But I want you to see Achan's sin because it does just show us how this one act over here that nobody else knew about and was accountable for still had great effect on God's people. It tells us, this is from the um, expositor's commentary, Quote, sin in the life of a believer always affects the rest of the church. As members of his body, we belong to each other and we affect each other. The bad example of a few saints can destroy the devotion and hinder the service of the rest of the church. Who the church is matters. Sin matters. Therefore, church discipline matters. All right. So here we go. I want to press into church discipline. If you and I have said to one another that because we are fellow heirs with Christ, because we profess to love Him and be His, because my life is intertwined with yours, because the church is a bride of Christ, because God has called us to live holy lives, then we must hold one another accountable in a loving manner. We must. It's the only loving thing to do. If I say that I love you and you say you love me and you see me walking in sin and you do nothing about it, then that was incredibly unloving of you. We just have to accept that. It's not comfortable. It's not where I want to say, sinning right over here, I need you to step into it right now. Like, we don't, that's not, it's not what we naturally want to do. But if you take your faith seriously, and we want to, and if you know that you're walking in sin, and you don't want to, and you can't do it on your own because you can't, 
You need the church, and the church needs you, and we need to do this together. So I want to walk through church discipline. The heart of church discipline, y'all, is really this. Like, let's take some of the fear out of it. It's really church accountability. Like, church discipline is accountability. That's what it comes down to. And it should be done in a humble, gracious, and loving manner. If it is not done in a humble, gracious, loving manner, then it is not church discipline in a biblical way. It is also for the unrepentant. We're going to talk about that here in a second. But someone who has repented of a sin, there may be consequences, but they don't need the heaviness of the most extreme church discipline at that moment either. Within reason. There are going to always be some caveats. Even as I say that, I'm like, well, not that one. Okay. So church discipline is simply this. It is the action or process by which an unrepent I'm sorry, it is the action or process by which unrepentant sin is addressed in the church. If you ask me what my definition is, that's what church discipline is. It's the action or process by which unrepentant sin is addressed in the church. And it looks different. Right? I discipline each one of my kids differently. Chas disciplines me differently, right? She's like, really? I'm like, oh, okay. Right? So each person wired, geared differently. Each situation is different. And so church discipline looks differently. My key word in all of that that I think you need to absolutely hold on to is unrepentance. We need to know that that's at the core of it. Okay, passages that illustrate church discipline. We already know 1 Timothy um, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 show us that. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 5 also do this. So I do want you to look at 1 Corinthians, and then it lays the groundwork for what church discipline is. And then I'm going to give you considerations that are going to move pretty quickly um, from that point. Where else do we see, besides 1 Timothy, where else do we see church discipline to the degree of excommunication? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. To me, some of these topics that we're going to be preaching on, I see them all throughout Scripture. It's kind of like the magic eye pictures. You stare at them long enough, like it looks all jumbled, and you just see a bunch of stuff. And in the 90s, these magic eye pictures, you stared at them, and all of a sudden there was a sailboat, and it like popped out. And once you saw the sailboat, you couldn't not see the sailboat anymore. Every time you walked by the picture, there was a sailboat. And your friends are like, how do you see the sailboat? You're like, it's right there, and they can't see it. I hope by, by moving slowly through some of these topics, you see things that maybe they just kind of pop out. And you can see this is not Ricky driving an agenda. This is just what Scripture says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported, Paul writing to the Corinthians, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. So this would be like a stepmom. And you are arrogant. He's writing this to the church. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, run to the Corinthians. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, look, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's very similar to what we saw in 1 Timothy. Now look at this. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I'm going to talk about that later. Your boasting is not good, church. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us collectively, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not, look at this, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then. You would need to go out to the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's a lot. But that is one of the core doctrines for church discipline. Churches spend a whole lot of time judging the world. And there's merit to that. We need to be a voice of reason. We need to be a beacon of light. We need to absolutely pronounce what is moral and immoral and, and be that voice. Absolutely. But we also must be willing to walk this out in our churches because if I bear the name of brother and I'm openly walking in sin and I... I'm not called to account for that. You're accountable for that. I'm accountable for that. We have to purge the evil person from among you. Now, a couple of reminders that we're going to get to later. Sin matters. This person's walking in unrepentance. And there's a final point that, that comes down. But that's where we go for church discipline. It says you need to deal with this evil that's in your midst. You can't just ignore it. Quit boasting and saying, oh, we're such a gracious church. We've learned how to deal with this and we're going to be okay with it. He says you're boasting in arrogance. You need to deal with this. All right, considerations for church discipline. And I will, I will speak quicker on this. I'm not going to be referring to a whole lot of passages except for maybe one or two down here. Number one, church discipline is church accountability. I hope you've seen um, the church, who it is, matters. Sin matters. Church discipline is biblical. It's there. We've got to deal with it. Now, how do you and I walk through this? These are Ricky-isms, not necessarily like what you're going to find in a book like this. This is just how I'll walk this out um, and share it with people. Um, it's what I think we at Cross Life need at this point in where we are. So you might say, well, I have a question about this. Great, let's have a cup of coffee. And I will absolutely speak into that. Or, or we talk later and I'm like, hey, that's something that I should have shared with the whole church. But I think for, for where we are, these will get us to what church discipline is. Church discipline is church accountability. Whenever you say church discipline, it sounds very heavy. It sounds like you're only talking about excommunication, which is taking a believer and removing them from the fellowship of the church. I don't think it's always that. It's conversations that correct one another. It's confessions that call us to account. Um, it, it'll, it's, call, it's, you, it's you being humble so that others can come along you. It's having hard conversations that matter. That's all church accountability. That's all still church discipline. It doesn't have to be like corrective in nature. It can be formative. In other words, you walking alongside one another. How's your week going? I'm really struggling with this. Let's, let's walk through that real quick. Let's, let's do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check up on you next week. That's still church accountability. That's still church discipline. That's healthy. So it's not always the heaviest, most extreme thing. But it's necessary. It's accountability. We all, we collectively, me, we all need accountability lest we do what was right in our own eyes, which is what happened in the book of Judges. Everyone, it says, did what was right in their own eyes. And we know that that was evil to the Lord. So we need the accountability. Look at it this way. When we covenant together as members, we step into a family of believers who care deeply for one another. 
We're not just coming alongside saying, hey, we're going to be pals until we can't be friends anymore. Whenever you covenant together, membership for Cross Life, we care deeply about one another because we know that we are co-heirs with Christ. To be a member, you have to have a profession of faith. You have to be baptized or willing to be baptized. And you're committing to a family of believers, hey, I know I need you and I'm going to be there for you. Like it's a deep commitment. It's even in our Cross Life Covenant membership, church discipline is. Now, some of you might go back and revisit it, but we take membership so seriously that we want that accountability there. And, and we sign these covenants to one another and for one another. The statement is in there that I, by signing, will submit to the church's discipline upon myself and lovingly assume my responsibility to participate in the, dis the discipline of other members as taught in Scripture. In other words, we see dis church discipline as a necessary measure for church membership, but it's for the health of the believer. It's for the health of the church. It's for the purity of those things. One day you will stand before Christ and you will see him face to face. That will be a wonderful moment. Don't you want to get there having cast off all the sin that you could while in this world? Knowing he's already died for it, but not wanting to live in it any longer either. Like you will see him face to face. I want you to not have that moment of, I'm about to see my God face to face. Oh, I wish I had not. But you know it's all been cast off. Y'all, church discipline is a loving act in that way. It is a loving act that the world will not understand. You also need to know this. We must confront sin and there is a process. This is really incredibly important. There is a process in Matthew 18. I'm not going to make you turn there, but if you want to, you can. I'm going to read to you the English uh, Standard Version. But for the, for the sake of time and, and to keep us moving forward, it does say, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector. Y'all, there's a process. I just met Luke, but let's just say that Luke and I had a problem coming up. I should not go tell... Nice to meet you, Luke. It's not loving or good for me to go and tell everybody else about the problem that Luke and I are having between us, nor is it biblical in any way. The biblical response whenever one of us sins against another, if there's any tension, is that I go to Luke or Luke comes to me and we talk about it. And you know what? If we resolve it, we're good. If we don't resolve it, then I can bring another couple of people. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not Facebooking it. I'm not, I'm not putting out on social media. I'm not going and, and, and having these prayer requests that are really pushing my agenda. I'm going to take a couple of other people and we're going to go talk. And if that doesn't resolve it, then I've got to take it to the church. And then if Luke at that point, because of in the, uh, he would be the one who's wrong here. Okay, so if Luke still didn't, then, then we would have to cast him out at that point. Y'all see the process? That's how it's supposed to work, y'all. That's how it's supposed to work. When did we quit doing the simple things? The simple things are hard, though, because I've got to go to Luke and say, Luke, I'm sorry I've offended you. I'm sorry that I sinned. You told me that. I had no idea. Like, I've got to be willing to die to myself whenever he comes to me. Good job, Luke. Church accountability and discipline, y'all, you need to know, it is often private and personal. You do not always see it, nor should you always see it. You don't have to. 
You just need to know that it's going on. Like there's something happening here. But it is often private and personal. It begins personally one-on-one, escalates to others, escalates to the church, escalates to excommunication or being cast out of the church. You notice what the main thing in each one of those escalations is? Unrepentance. (coughs) But if I go and I'm repentant or, or the other is repentant, how honored is Christ in that? Praise God, right? So this is, this is also important, and I'm going to put it out there, though none of you would ever do this. I know me, so I would be tempted to do this. It's very important. It is unloving and sinful for me to approach a brother or sister and find reconciliation and repentance and then go tell others about the private offense again. If it's forgiven, there's restoration, repentance, and it is done. Right? So we have to walk in that. All right, I'm going to tell you this. Next point for church discipline, you have to be involved. Cain asked very sinfully in Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? The biblical answer is yes, you are your brother's keeper. If you know an offense, if you know something that you are supposed to step into, you don't get to say, Lord, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for this? Because he will very clearly say, yes, you are. Why aren't you in it right now? It is biblical to be involved. It is uncomfortable to be involved. Just is. But you know what? God can be greatly glorified in your involvement. He may do ministry through you that nobody else could ever do. He's given you the ministry of reconciliation. Number five, church discipline should be restorative in nature. That's very, very key. It should be restorative in nature. Why does Paul hand over Hymenaeus and Alexander, and why does he tell this other one to be cast out of fellowship? So that they will learn not to blaspheme so that their, de- their spirit will be saved in the day of Christ. His goal is push them to the extreme, give them the most extreme punishment we can, so that they will learn that what they're doing is not okay, and they will find repentance. He wants them to be restored. He wants them to learn not to do these evil things. He wants them to be saved in the day of Christ. If we seek to only punish and we don't seek restoration, we're not doing church discipline. It needs to be done in such a way where it's done in love and we seek to restore So the intent of church discipline is not punishment alone, but hopeful repentance and restoration. Ricky, what if we do this and they don't repent? They may not. But we did what we were supposed to do. Next point. Church discipline, because I want to be clear, is for the unrepentance. We know that repentance is... No, I'm going to take that back. In case you don't know, because we throw throw around church terms quite a bit. Repentance is whenever you're going one way, you're pursuing this sin, and the repentance is actually a technical term where you turn a 180 and you just go a completely different direction, steadfast going this way. It's not. This is not repentance. And then you turn around and you kind of look at it and then you keep going this way. It is a steadfast 180 direction. We're seeking repentance... And it's because we've repented that Christ has died or has, has laid his blood on our account. We repent, we confess our sins, we repent of our sins, we glory in his forgiveness. When we feel the conviction that what we are doing or have done is wrong, and we say, God, I'm sorry for that sin, and we turn away from it, then we've repented. That's our goal. It's whenever someone goes, Well, I just don't know. Okay, this isn't working. This is not repentance if you just kind of keep dismissing or justifying. All right, keep going. Okay, church discipline should be done with gentleness and humility. You most absolutely have to look at this one. Galatians chapter 6. Don't worry, of like 22, we're on number 17. I'm just joking, there's not 22. There's just a, there's a, it's a big topic. 
Um, so you'll bear with me just a little bit longer. We are almost done. But I hope at the end you, you have some good things to, to process through some of this. Church discipline should be done with gentleness and humility. So Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Brothers, Paul writes to the church of Galatia. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, did you see that? Anyone, any transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I have to underline gentleness in my Bible. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So if there's any brother or sister who is caught up in any sin, then you who are spiritual, you who are a believer, you are obligated. This is not an option. There is an obligation here, excuse me, that we are to seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Not just the elders, right? Not just the deacons and the, and the, the leaders of the church. But we who are spiritual, we who, who are healthy in that moment, we have to step into it in a spirit of gentleness. If you and I consider the seriousness of sin for the believer and for the church, think of Achan's sin, think of the identity and the purity of the church, then we have to step into the messiness for the sake of their soul and for the church's purity. It must be done with gentleness. I'm a black and white person. I sometimes come across more direct just because whenever I'm in mode, I just kind of throw things out there. They've learned this at work. I'm always like in mode, and so they'll ask me a question, and I'll just say it, and I'll keep on going. Church discipline is not a business operation. It's a loving kindness that we do for one another. It requires us to slow down. And while I'm a black and white person, while I see it one way, it must be done with gentleness. Why? For the sake of their souls. In doing this, verse 2 says that you fulfill the law of Christ. You fulfill it. I fulfill it. We want to glory in Christ. We want to make much for Him and His name. This is how we do it. We have to be willing to do the hard things because He is so incredibly worthy. But then it also says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too, be, you too be tempted. I do think that, number one, this can mean that the temptation that we're stepping into or the sin that we're trying to address could become a temptation to us. I do think it means that. But I also think, having walked in this role, that you and I must guard ourselves against the sins, the temptations of pride and judgment or apathy. Extremes that can come up as we're walking alongside people our pride, our judgment, and our apathy where we kind of just either give up or we see ourselves as better. Heavy church discipline. Next point. Heavy church discipline is heavy and hard. I have a story I can share with you for the sake of time. I just simply can't, but I will put it this way. Chas and I have had to walk through heavy church discipline where we had to excommunicate someone. We had to cast them out of fellowship. It still haunts me. I can still remember that meeting. I can still remember the phone calls of this thing occurring. And it was nothing with sexual immorality at all, like that you see in 1 Corinthians. It's, it's nothing that you see in 1 Timothy. It was a believer who had covenanted with the church, who was in a leadership position, and who was deceiving and lying to everybody. He had created this facade of his life to the degree where he says, oh, I'm going to college, and the church helped purchase books. And he spent time at Starbucks every day. Whenever his girlfriend would call, he would say, I'm just walking across campus to my next class. And he wasn't. Who said that he was going on, on the mission field. The church laid hands on him and prayed for him. And he didn't. He went on a vacation to see his friends in another state. I mean, that's, 
that affected the whole body. That escalated in, into such a degree where casting him out. Now, how did we, how was he cast out? We actually called his family and said, hey, this is going on. We're sending him back to you because he can't stay here as a college-age-ish type student. We also called local churches down there and said, hey, we have a brother in Christ who has transgressed in this way. Here are the actions we've taken. We want to know that there is a pastor on the other end who will reach out to him and seek restoration and repentance as well, and we will do follow-up. And the pastor at that church did. pastor at our church would call the other pastor. Church, pastor at our church would call and check on that, that person. So we've had to see that. I don't know how it affected Chas. I still feel it. Whenever I hear the word church discipline, I kind of go, because it is heavy and it is hard, but it was necessary. I would tell you to be careful of the pastor who's eager to execute church discipline. Be careful of the pastor who is reluctant to execute church discipline. And be prayerful for the pastor who must execute church discipline to that degree. It's heavy. But we walk under Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So the elders bear this weight that we will give an account for your souls. Anyone who covenants with cross life, I'm accountable for. And I will have to give an account for your soul and their soul and their soul and their soul. That's a weighty task. It's one that Andy and I take seriously. It's one that whoever becomes another elder here bears that burden. Whenever we stand before the throne and we give an account, we want to make sure that we were faithful. And this is a heaviness for us. Okay. Last passage, and then we're done, I promise. John chapter 8. I know this is a long one, but I hope it's helpful. John chapter 8. It's my last main point. Here it is. It's longer. While church discipline may be necessary for an unrepentant member, church discipline must also consider the radical forgiveness of Jesus too. Appropriate church discipline will be held in the tension of mercy and grace and justice. Let me do that last part again. Appropriate church discipline will be held in tension of mercy and grace and justice. John chapter 8. Y'all don't forget Jesus with the adulterous woman. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, sometimes in our own pursuit of holiness, we forget the radical grace of God that said, though you are a sinner, I will forgive you. Only go and sin no more. Church discipline without the heart of Jesus does not honor the gospel. 
That's a primer. There are books out there. There are sermon series out there. There are more eloquent pastors who can, who can expound on these so much more. And they are worth looking into if you have further questions. I will answer any question I possibly can. But you do need to know that at Cross Life, this is a component of who we are because I just see the benefit for you and for me. How did some of these churches in the, in the first generation go so amiss? How did, how did false teachers rise up among them? Because no one was holding those leaders accountable either. There should be accountability one towards another with the respect of the roles and the relationships. Absolutely. But may we never forget that it is biblical, but it must be biblical in its intent and heart as well. If you're asking, okay, so in conclusion, what, what do I do with this today, Ricky? Like, where's my, where's my verse that I get to carry and put on my shirt and like own it for the week? How about just a humble reminder that you and I were sinners. And at the right time, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. You and I were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in love and mercy, died for us. And now we are his workmanship. We just need to know how to do this better and better each time. I don't think you need to set yourself out as a postman on the wall, watchman on the wall, looking out for everybody's sin so that you can step into it. I think you just need to know that we're accountable to one another and for one another, and that's an act of love. That's what God wants his church to look like. And one day we will see him face to face. May until then we honor him. All for his glory and not my own not your own. Lord, we love you. This is a different type of sermon for us. I pray that you are honored through it. Lord, I pray that, that you do a work in us, Lord, that brings us closer to you. Lord, I pray for all of our members and all of our, our regular guests who are not able to be here today because they have great opportunity to see family to, to get away, Lord, but also for those who are sick and battling through that, Lord. Pray that you keep them as healthy as, as they can be, but Lord, you are the healer and you sustain us. But Lord, as we have covenanted together to be the church that you have called us to be, Lord, help us to do that with the right measure of grace and mercy and justice, glorying in the gospel of who you are and what you've done. You are our God, we are your people, and you are bringing us home. Lord, we love you and praise our Son's holy name. Amen.